Hello, friends, and thanks for listening to the Capital City Soccer Show, your independent source for everything Austin FC. Today, we're going to talk about the Columbus Crew, and we're going to be joined by Chris Bills, who's a local soccer writer and soccer expert, and an expert on this saga. He covered the entire thing from from start to finish, essentially. So, we're going to bring him in and and kind of go through that whole story. So. I'm joined as always by Mr. Jeremiah Bentley. Jeremiah, how's it going? Hey, Landon, I'm doing great, everybody. This is Jeremiah Bentley. I think one thing we'll get into in this interview is Chris has a perspective that probably you know nobody else has around this just because of his background, because of where he's from, where he worked, and how we got to Austin. So we're excited to share this journey with everyone, um, and hopefully you all enjoy the show. Yeah, so this uh, interview, we've already recorded it. It goes a little bit long, so we're not going to waste any more of your time. We're just going to jump right in. So we'll take a quick break, and we'll be back with Chris Bills. I wanted to take a minute to remind you to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd also like to encourage you to visit CapitalCitySoccer.com, where Troy Bryant and Zach Mason bring you the latest in Austin FC news including player rumors, sponsorship updates, ticket updates, and more. Once again, that is CapitalCitySoccer.com. Today we're joined by Chris Bills, a soccer writer for the Austin American Statesman, alongside other publications. Chris is one of the lead reporters through the entire Austin-Columbus uh, drama, and so uh, he'll have a unique perspective on this whole situation both being a Columbus native and a crew intern before coming to Austin. So we're really excited to talk to Chris and we're, we're happy to have you here, Chris. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having me guys. Uh, I, I really enjoy the podcast. You guys are killing with this thing. So happy to, happy to come on and, uh, and talk about uh, a topic that uh, you guys are really just jumping in the fire here. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be uh Twitter's going to be fun for a couple of days. So with, uh, with- with some of the last few shows we've done, we're we're taking the the Mister Rogers approach, which which is if it's mentionable, it's manageable. And so yeah. we're going to talk about the the supporters group split, and I think that went well and like was kind of cathartic in a way. And I'm hoping this will be the same thing. So it's it's like a thing that we didn't ever really get a chance to like speak openly and honestly about for for a multitude of reasons and so now that some time has separated us from all of the drama i I think it's a good time to do it yeah no i i I agree i'm not sure everybody will agree but uh that's all right like you said (laughs) i I like the mr rogers approach that's uh i agree with you on that uh so before we jump into that um we wanted to take the opportunity while we're while we have you here to talk a little bit about cecilio dominguez Uh, we figured you might know a little bit more than than what we do so um, can, can you briefly tell us what the, what the state of that transfer rumor is? Yeah. So it sounds like, uh, it's, it's been interesting the last few days. I'm sure you guys have been following, uh, Twitter and, and, uh, using the translink function as much as I have, or maybe not so much. I know Landon, you speak maybe a little more Spanish than I do, but, uh, definitely given the Spanish workout this, this week, which is, which is good. I like, I like stretching those muscles a little bit. Uh, but yeah, the latest news out of Argentina, sounds like, uh, there's some outlets reporting that it's basically a, a done deal for, for Cecilia Domingos to come to Austin FC. There's a lot of reasons why I think it, it makes sense as you kind of put the puzzle pieces together. Uh, Independiente is in, uh, dire straits financially right now, um, with, uh, owing some clubs some money, including Club America, where 
Cecilia Dominguez uh, came from. I think the the reported sum that I saw was that uh, they owe $3.8 million uh, to Club America. Um, and the sum, the, 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 the latest report that I saw had Dominguez coming to Austin FC for about $4 million. So it'll help them kind of pay off those debts. And there's a few players that they're maybe looking to move in, in this transfer window. So just kind of an interesting uh, little uh, peek into the window of South American football a little bit this past week, uh, which is, uh, you know, kind of fun. And also, um, as you, I'm sure you guys saw as well, Cecilia Dominguez has the same agent, uh, Diego Cerati, right, uh, yeah. same agent as Rodney Reyes. So it, it kind of, you know, makes that's an extra puzzle piece that kind of fits and, and makes you think that, okay, this, this seems like it's, it's probably headed in the right direction. I've actually been able to message, uh, uh, Cerati a couple of times the last, uh, over the last week. And, and just this morning he, he said that, yeah, we're, we're still talking. So still, um, and actually he kind of, he, he said, uh, Sunday, Sunday's not a day for working for, for, for uh, a lot of people <laughs> down there. So, uh, I think, I, it's not that I wasn't expecting anything to happen today because these things move quickly and, and the news gets gets around pretty quickly if, if there's something going down. So uh, I, I don't doubt the reporting out of Argentina, but I suspect we might learn a little more uh, as this week gets started. Uh, so maybe by the time this podcast hits, information that we do right now. Yeah, so uh, for the record, we are recording this on a Sunday night and it'll probably come out Tuesday morning. So um, by the time you all are listening to this, he might be an Austin FC player officially. So we'll, we'll see. Um, speaking of Austin FC signings, just real quick, have you gotten a chance to watch, uh, any of Redis's games or highlights or anything like that? I haven't watched any games. It sounds like you've been maybe a little bit, uh, more on the grind with that than, than I have. Uh, I don't I've have watched one of those the fancy passwords. <laughs> I've watched three of, I think they've, they've played five maybe since the restart. And I think I've watched three of them. Um, and yeah, he, he's, he works super hard. Like he's, he's young, he's clearly gifted in, in several different ways. So, um, it's frustrating to watch because what I need don't really keep the ball. Like they don't have very good possession in the attacking third. And so it's just like kind of desperate moments of like, midfielders launching super long balls for Rodney to chase or like him checking in and, and being able to kind of hold up play or make a, a connecting pass. But there it's a little bit frustrating to watch when you're just watching this one player and hoping for him to, to do something. But um, he, he's showing a lot of promise. So I, I think I, I don't look at him and say like, he's definitely going to be like a world beater in MLS, but I watch him and think that he could be a very good player in MLS given the, um, some development, which Wolf has talked about, we we got this player to develop and and make a better player, uh, and also just in a system that that suits him. So hopefully, hopefully that's going to be the scenario the the scenario for him when he gets here to your gets to Austin. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the exciting thing. There should it should maybe be seen as an exciting thing with uh, with Dominguez is that uh, you're looking at a player who's a few years older little bit different spot in his career but similar position similar background being from also from from Paraguay and and Asuncion uh specifically and um I just think it's interesting right seeing the profiles of those two players and and thinking about okay where do they fit into the roster uh I think Redis uh with the price point and you know 
I do think he's probably going to be a factor uh, that first year, especially if he comes in and does well in, in training. But uh, definitely Dominguez is a starting starting 11-level player and potentially even a DP with that transfer sum if that, if that is accurate and, and that ends up, you know, it depends how long the contract is. We can get into the whole, uh, you know, Tam versus – yeah, you guys, but that's not this podcast right now. So Jeremiah uh, loves Tam and Gam. Uh, yeah, oh yeah, Tam and Gam. That's all I do is share memes on Twitter with Landon about it. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, so I don't know. Uh, it, it's too early to say whether either you know whether uh, Dominguez. You know, we don't even know if he's you know fully going to be on the team yet. But assuming that he is, uh, I just think that's a, that's kind of a next step, next level. I don't know that it'll, it'll really whet the appetite for some fans of, of getting a big name DP, but I, I do think that, that that's kind of um, maybe the profile you're looking for of, okay, that's sort of a big transfer fee, but he's 25 and, and potentially you get a sell on at some point. So it's just kind of interesting to see the steps of, okay, we got the first, they got the first player and now here's the second player and, and, you know, kind of, the building blocks kind of, kind of deal. So, which I know you guys have been into, uh, thinking about that stuff too. Oh yeah. Let's think too much about it for, for there not actually even being any other players besides Rodney right now, but yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. Let's jump into the reason why we're here, which is to talk about the, the Austin Columbus crew saga. So, um, let's, let's jump in from kind of the beginning of this, which would have been the summer of 2013 when, uh, Anthony Precourt bought the Columbus crew and tell me, tell me if I'm wrong about this, Chris, but I believe he was the second to last, uh, sorry, the, the hunts were the second to last owners to own multiple teams. Yeah, that sounds right. I honestly maybe would have thought that they were the last. Who who would who was um, the last? I think Anschutz. I think Anschutz still owned one other team, and I can't remember. Maybe Houston. Oh, did then he still, Houston? he still. Yeah, he did at some point. So maybe. I think I think it was a, still a few years when he was the majority owner at Houston after Precourt bought the crew. But yeah, so uh, it's essentially MLS moving out of that period where they want each club to be owned by one owner. And, uh, that this was one, one of the reasons this happened was, was for that. So 2013 Anthony Precourt, uh, well to go back a little bit further, they were trying to find local ownership in Columbus and weren't able to do it. And so that's when they started looking outside of Columbus and Anthony Precourt was one of the people that, that came up. So, um, tell me if I'm wrong about this, but w- you were a, an intern and mm-hmm. the Columbus crew, was it during this, this very moment? No, it's interesting. It's funny. You wanted to bring this up. Cause this, uh, you know, I see this, this, uh, this conversation, I'm going to peel back the curtain a little bit, but, uh, so, so peeling back the curtain, I, I, I remember where I was when, when Anthony Precourt, when it was announced that Anthony Precourt, uh, uh, had, had bought the team. I, I was actually, uh, so it was summer. It was, I, I think it was July. Was it? Oh uh, yeah, I think I think it was announced official August first, but okay. So August first, news yes, stories. Sounds, it would have been. That sounds right. There was talk about it for a week or so before that. Okay, so yeah, so uh, yeah, around that time frame, late August or late July, early August, I was actually uh, on vacation with my mom in Chicago, 
uh, it was like the summer leading into my senior year of college. I went to a small school called Ashland, which is actually in between uh, Columbus and Cleveland. Anyway, uh, my mom and I were in Chicago, uh, kind of enjoying a weekend. And I remember opening up Twitter and, and seeing all this stuff about Anthony Precourt and, and, you know, seeing kind of crew fans. And actually the thing that people were wondering that day was exactly what we're, what we're talking about is whether, whether Precourt was, was going to maybe try and, and move the team because people were trying to figure out who this guy was. Uh, you know, a lot of people, there had been some talk of maybe a few years previously about potentially local ownership. And this was not that it was a, you know, a venture capitalist from, um, from, from California. And there really wasn't a lot of public information uh, on Anthony Precourt. I mean, there still really isn't a ton other than uh, other the, the um, his MLS ownership. So uh, it, it, it was interesting that, and it's interesting thinking back, just how different my life was then as I was just a, you know, a college kid and, and really interested in, in soccer and starting to get more into MLS to the point where I actually called up uh, either Tim Miller or Alex Caulfield who were in the communications department um, that summer. And I, and this is what I can't remember if it was just before or just after that, that conversation had happened. I was on the way back from my writing for the uh, drag racing magazine in Norwalk, Ohio. Uh, and one day, and, and I had gone to a networking event and I had, and I just called, I called one of those guys and was like, Hey, I, I really want to, I want to work in soccer. And, and uh, it was right after Ashland to cut their men's soccer team. And that, that was kind of my, my baby when I was in college was covering the men's soccer team in the fall and the men's and women's teams. But that was, I took that news pretty hard and, and I just wanted to, to find a way to get more involved in soccer that fall. And, uh, they brought me in. It was, it was August. So yeah, right. Just a couple months or, or even less than a month. It sounds like after Anthony Precourt had bought the team. So I was there seeing the very early stages of the new ownership and really the front office trying to feel out what, what that was going to be like. Uh, so yeah, not to get too long winded on, on the very first part of this, but, uh, <laughs> It, it's it's funny to think back uh, to that to that time in my life because I I remember exactly where I was and what I was doing when when Anthony Freecourt brought bought the Columbus Crew. So what what was the you, you just said that there was people were a little bit nervous about it within I mean like just before then and then within say like that first year afterwards what was the atmosphere and the mood like around the crew and how did it change during that time. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it, it was it was interesting to watch from inside the front office because this is the thing that I think people don't understand, and 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 I'm I want to be careful the way I say this because I'm really not trying to to lead anybody astray. I, I grew up two hours from Columbus, so it's not like I was really embedded in the fan base. Like MLS was a thing that I kind of caught in onto probably leading out of the the 2010 World Cup and. Um, you know, had gone to maybe like one or two crew matches that summer and, and then kind of went to a few more during college, found a few friends that wanted to go down. And, um, so it's not like I was like in the Nordaca every, every weekend or anything like that, but then I got the internship and, uh, seeing it from the inside, I think people were just really energized. I mean, like the Huns and the Huns did so much for major league soccer, but by that point, their focus was on Dallas and, um, I, I don't think that the hunts had been to, to Columbus maybe more than 
a few times in the in the past few years leading up to that moment and the fan the fan base was at an all-time low especially in 2012 i think was their lowest attendance and they had a few middling seasons as well they like they had had success yeah. in a few years before and there's like th- i think three years where they just the team wasn't that great either during my internship there were three different head coaches because uh robert warziha got fired i mean like literally maybe the week that i started on the internship and brian bliss um who now what is brian i think brian bliss is with maybe the u23s or one of the anyway brian bliss was the uh the interim coach and then they hired greg berhalter and i was there i I was on the conference call i transcribed like a 45 minute conference call when greg berhalter got hired (laughs) at the moment's crew and i was there the the day the day he started the job uh and 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 had a a fun interaction with him the day that he started just uh really kind of got a glimpse into his personality a little bit but uh so anyway there were three different head coaches um, and Andy Lochnane, I don't think was hired until a little bit later, maybe even 2015 or it was definitely not, it was maybe 2014 or 2015. It was several months into, I, I looked this up the other day. It wasn't immediately, but it wasn't long after okay. got the team. So, so maybe I'll, I'll, within, I'm off on that. I want to say within six months or so. Okay. Okay. My internship ended in November, December. So anyway, I could be just a little bit off on that, but. The um, <laughs> where 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 was I going there? What was, um, the, what was the what was the initial question? What what, what was the what was the mood or like the what was the mood around the club and the like the front office? You know, yeah, I think every reacting to that. Yeah, everybody was really energized. I think because there there was new ownership and of course everybody like you know. I, I'm sure it's like any business, uh, like the Statesman went through this a couple of years ago where the, there was new owners and everyone's trying to, to be on their best behavior and do their jobs the best that they can. And new ownership's got new expectations. And um, there was a little bit more money being pumped into the club. Like when they hired Greg Berhalter, everybody was like, oh, wow, like here's a former national team player and a guy who coached in Europe. And um, so there was just kind of this feeling that and I think they had, were already starting on the rebrand. I wasn't part of any of those conversations, but they ended up rebranding. Um, and and that was a, a big moment for the club. And within the fan base, even, I think there was still some feeling out period, but I think there was a lot of energy around, this is the new crew. And that was the term that was, I think, Frank Hick was out on the street when they, before they rebrand, rebranded. Um, Frankie's just the coolest dude, but uh, he was out, uh, you know, pumping up hashtag new crew. And, and that was the feeling around, around Columbus was that this was a, this was a whole new ball game with, with the crew. It was going to be more major league. And um, yeah. So that's what I remember is just the energy. Yeah. Well, the, well, so there was obviously one, you know, part of that acquisition that would lead to all the drama later, the, the infamous Austin clause. Um, yeah. But like what, like, I mean, when did it pop up? Like, was that something that was even a thing that anybody, you know, knew about? Or, or what is the origin of that? Because that would obviously be a big part of the story down the road. The first time I ever heard about uh, the possibility of the Columbus crew moving to Austin was I was sitting in Haymaker after I'd moved here in, in 2016. But I think, it, I think it was actually the summer of 2017. I went to a U.S. national team watch party at Haymaker and Josh Babetsky was sitting across the table from me and 
he said uh, something about what would you think about the Columbus crew moving to, to Austin and, and I, and something along those lines. And I remember like looking him dead in the face and I just said, that's not going to happen. I, I said, there's no way that that's going to happen. Like MLS won't let that happen. Uh, <laughs> and he was like, well, I'm pretty sure that's going to happen at some point. And I was like, I remember him being very sure and me being very sure and just being like, <laughs> all right, like, we'll see and then i think you want to get to it later but the 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 grant wall tweet was really when when everything kind of popped off and 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 that was you know the first i thought about it after after that and i was like wow okay (laughs) this this is real so uh, that's my that it's just kind of interesting to think back to that conversation with josh and we've talked about it since then i've talked about it to a few people about it but i don't think i've been real public about um a lot of the reasons why I didn't think it was going to happen is why it didn't end up happening. Right. But that doesn't mean that, you know, Josh wasn't right or didn't know some things back then that, that I didn't know. But um, I do feel like it's just interesting to think back because the exact reasons like the history and, and the fan base and knowing um, right. How upset original MLS fans get about the history being ignored or neglected um and the fact that there's so many owners willing to buy into these teams uh no matter what city they're in seemingly uh it's just that's that's kind of what it ended up happening not to i mean it could have very easily gone the other way and we can get to that stuff too but um all the reasons why i was like no that's not going to happen that's that's exactly what ended up being so ugly and like me seeing both sides, I was so frustrated at certain points um, with just the, the the conversation around it. And um, you guys are well versed in, in all that, like the Twitter conversations, but also some of the political back and forth and, and all the different layers that we went through. It was really a, a long couple of years of my life uh, that I was deeply entrenched, probably more than I should have been in, uh, <laughs> in a lot of the, the moments that, that, that transpired. But uh, yeah, where do you want to go next, Landon? Um, yeah, I, I wanted to touch on that on the Austin clause a bit more. So, for those of you who aren't as uh, obsessed or not necessarily obsessed, weren't as like inundated with all this information as we were over the last few years, uh, there was a clause like when Anthony Precourt bought the team, or at some point in those in those years when he owned the crew, there was a clause put into the the contract with MLS that said he can't move the team unless it's to Austin. And so it's, I wanted to ask you if, if you had heard anything about that before, but I think you just said you hadn't. So um, it's, it's unclear when that was added, if it was like off the bat or if it was added at some point later on. Um, but from the, all the stuff that I've read and heard, I get this sense that it wasn't in like maybe partly this, but it wasn't entirely Anthony Precourt coming in saying, I'm definitely going to move this team to Austin. Well, there was even a period in the initial uh, reporting phase of this when, uh, yeah, I would say most of late 2017, when we were still trying to understand if that was real, uh, whether the Austin clause was, was real because um, the night of Grant Wall's tweet, um, there was a story that went online on the Columbus, on uh, the dispatch Columbus Dispatch website written by uh, I think Adam Jardy 
um, who was the beat writer when I was the intern down there. And he was a beat writer until I want to say either 2015 or 2016. And he moved to Ohio state men's basketball beat. Um, but he posted a story that mentioned the Austin clause. And then Michael erase would sort of point to it in some of his columns, but not really directly source it. And, it was really interesting and not that it was bad reporting by any stretch. I just think that that piece, that, that initial story that went online on the dispatch was taken down by the morning and I didn't save it, you know, and I was, there was a, a point during that. And this is how I remember it. So, um, you know, uh, I'm not trying to throw shade at anybody at this the dispatch, these things, that was a crazy day for a number of different people, especially, you know, certain people uh, in Austin and from Austin who were actually in Columbus that night. Uh, I think you guys <laughs> maybe talked to about, about that on one of the previous episodes, but. Uh, you're referencing one, Kristen Markham there. Yeah. Yeah. I was making <laughs> sure, I, I wanted to make sure in my head that that was, that was public. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. yeah we did. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Kristen was in Columbus and, and, and uh, there were a lot of people very upset about the way that that story came to light um, ahead of, ahead of schedule. Um, like it was an embargoed story that, that leaked, um, which is always frustrating for people in PR and, uh, and even in journalism, right? I mean, we don't want that to happen either, but it happens sometimes because with a story like that with so much uh, dynamite and, and, you know, just, somebody with the fuse and, and it, it got out and, and it happened. Um, and there were stuff, there was stuff that was flying that night, like crazy. And I'm not sure how much editing went into it and how well sourced some of the little details were. And, and that was one that I just don't, didn't know for five or six months what the truth was around the Austin clause. And eventually we kind of dragged it out of somebody at some point that yeah, i think that garber was, confirmed it at one point yeah exactly well. that's what happened i think it was alexi lawless uh alexi lawless at mls cup in december asked a question about the austin clause and garber just answered the question and we were and i was sitting at my computer like what <laughs> like he just like <laughs> he just like confirmed that the austin clause exists during the middle of like the pre MLS cup. And this is the only, I'm the only person in the world probably who's like nerding out of not the only person, but like, uh, yeah, I was immediately like tweeting about like, yeah, like Don Garber just confirmed the Austin clause in the middle of this press conference. And I'm not sure anybody really cared as much as I did at that moment, but yeah, it was real. Like it was real. There was, there was a clause at some point that, uh, allowed, Anthony Precourt to have that option and the reasons why we can get into, but uh, I mean, it just, that was the only way that the crew was going to be sold at the price that it was sold for. Do you, do you get the sense that like from what I've read and heard, I, I get the sense that um, it almost seemed like that was as much to do with MLS as it was to do with Anthony Precourt. Would you agree with that? Or would you, th do Absolutely. you think it was, uh, I mean, well, I mean, that's that's for the people in 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 Columbus to to decide, right? Like, there's a lot of vitriol that is aimed at both sides, and 
there's parts of it that that certainly are are warranted and, and fair, but there's also parts that maybe yeah, like if it wasn't Anthony Precourt, wouldn't it wouldn't it have been somebody else? Like they might have moved the team back in uh, 2013 if if they had found a different owner that that was willing to pay the price to to move it at that at that moment. But they they found an owner who. Um, at that point, I mean, pumped some money and, and, and I'm not going to say a lot. I'm not going to say a little, I'm not going to make any judgments on, on, on that end of things, but they, they were spending at a higher rate than the, the, the hunts were on the Columbus crew and, and they rebranded and they had a whole shindig at city hall, uh, with the mayor and, and some people and, and some ugly jerseys that, that sure looked like they were trying to get something pushed through with the city to me, uh, you know, that's what I thought was happening at, at that moment in, in franchise history was that they were trying to get it, you know, maybe some uh, start to, to plant the seeds for a stadium deal in, in Columbus. And um, it just didn't happen. And, and, and at some point they, you know, they decided to act on, on the Austin clause. Now I think there's a lot of proof that they were acting on it years previously. Um, you know, the, the partnership with, the Austin Aztecs is one that, that gets pointed to a lot in 2015. But, um, <clears throat> you know, to say that Anthony Precourt did nothing for the Columbus crew, I, I think is, it's just not true. You know, uh, it, it's just not. And and there's a lot of people that are in Columbus that will probably be upset with me for, for saying that. But uh, I think that MLS made the decision that they felt like they had to make at the moment that they did to sell a team that was, bleeding money and, and, and not productive in, in its current owner's hands. And um, they found an owner that was willing to pay a price that they were willing to take. And, and they got to MLS cup in 2015. And, and then, you know, the ball bounced off Steve, Steve Clark's leg and, and, it, and everything kind of spiraled from there. Uh, it's just, it's so crazy to look back on it. And there's probably some people that aren't ready to, to, to have that conversation, but here we are. And it's just, it's so wild and it's especially wild for me sitting here in Austin reporting on Austin FC that, you know, that's a whole different layer to things that, that <laughs> is just, I just can't believe it. But there's so many moments that, that are, you, you wouldn't, I wouldn't, there's no way in a million years I would have believed the way this story turned out if somebody and had set me down. That's part of the reason why like we wanted to, to do this show and it's, like the save the crew story was was like the headline in MLS, right? Like around this whole thing, like the save the crew movement was the headline. And that's all most people knew about. And like, fair enough. It's it's, it's like a special story, right? Um, but there's just like so many more layers below that of like of the whole thing in general, but then also like of just the stuff that was happening here in Austin, like the peripheral stuff with like City Hall and and all of that. But, um, we'll, we'll get to that here in a little bit, but yeah, it's, it's a wild story. And if, yeah, it, in, unless you were like kind of following along, it's like very complex. And so it's difficult to understand, but once you start like grabbing on a little pieces and realize how crazy it is, it's, it's a very like crazy and complex situation, but, um, yeah, we're, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. We're trying to stay somewhat chronological here. So going back to the, Grant Wall tweet. Um, again, so that was that was kind of out of nowhere, right? Was it the same? The that that was the first thing that anybody knew about it, or was it, were there any whispers 
earlier that day or anything about it? Um, so yeah, that's an interesting question because, uh, so I, that was, a. it was, it was, uh, I wrote this down, so I want to make sure I got my, my facts the way that I, yeah. So it was October 16th of 2017. And I think that was in my memory, it was a Monday, it was either Monday or Tuesday and it was F1 week, um, in Austin. And it was my first time covering formula one. And Kevin Lytle was showing me the ropes and showing me around Coda. And it was a long day. And I was a guy had just gotten home and I got a call from Kevin and I was like, Kevin, we just went over all this <laughs> stuff. Like, I just want to sit by the, you know, I just want to relax. And uh, he's like, do you have any contacts left at the Columbus crew? Like, is there anybody that I can call? Because I'm hearing these rumors and, I don't know what, what's real and what's not real, but somebody is, is trying to, to tell me that the Columbus crew might, might move to, to Austin and there's going to be an announcement tomorrow. And I'm just in my head, I'm just like, what the heck is, <laughs> I just like that conversation with Josh Babetsky popped in my mind. And I was just like, what in the world is happening right now? Um, and yeah, I called up some people and nobody was sure of what was facts at that point but they were like yeah you might be onto something and then obviously there was folks that grant wall um beat us to confirming that um at that moment i i kevin was kevin was in, in the lead of reporting that and um i actually didn't start reporting on any of it until uh late october which I can get into if, if you're interested in, in that minutia, but uh, it it was an interesting couple of weeks for sure. Of of um, first, I had an F one race to cover, and I think if, if I remember right, Anthony Precourt came to town during that week, um, later in the week, and met with Kevin Lytle and some other media members uh, in town, and then we had the race to cover that weekend, and. Um, it was a lot of fun covering F1, but that was also the soccer part of me was just going insane, trying to keep up with what was, what was happening yeah. with this potential MLS team in Austin and this MLS team that I also had some, some ties to back home. So, yeah. Yeah. That's that, my that tweet. That, yeah, that tweet was like a 10 o'clock at night tweet. I remember like, I don't think I slept that night. Cause like everybody that knew anything, you know, there's excited about soccer and whatever. It was just, you know, all over it. Cause I, th I think right. you're right. I mean, it was, there was, so, there was something cooking that got out a bit, got out a few hours earlier than anybody had planned. <laughs> yeah. And then like, once it was out, that's, uh, that's exactly right. Jeremiah is like, I don't think I slept either because Twitter was just on fire. It was like, and I told somebody this very shortly after is like, I had created the perfect curated Twitter feed at that moment on October 16th 2017 like my twitter feed was literally it was people in columbus soccer and it was people in austin soccer and that's what was <laughs> on my feed it was like i had created the people create those lists on twitter like that was my followers or not my followers but the people i was following on twitter was like i was like what is what is happening <laughs> what in the world is my life right now. I went back and read a lot of like reactions to the Grant Wall tweet and the stuff that was happening around that time. And it's just like, 
I mean, now when you, when I go to it, certain people's names pop up to the top because it's people I follow now. And like at the time, it's people I wouldn't have met for like a year from yeah. that point. And now it's just like going back and reading all these things. And it's, it's really bizarre. Like you were talking about looking back at like your life in when, when you heard that pre-court bought the crew back when you're still in college. And it's, it feels like that to me, like thinking back to just how different of a world, like our individual lives, but then just like Austin soccer was at that point in time and like what it's, what it's, how much has changed since. But, um, yeah, so kind of the next phase after the Grant Wall tweet, um, like, so the Save the Crew movement starts up and that's really like, that's the story for the next few months. And then that kind of kickstarts the the legal end of it in Columbus. And then at the same time, like a bunch of legal stuff going on and like stuff going on at City Hall here in Austin, kind of these two separate legal paths happening in Columbus and Austin that this whole deal is kind of hinging on. And so that's where kind of the, the Austin side of the saga starts as well. So are there any, any like kind of highlights from, from that era that, that you want to talk about? Yeah, I actually, there's something that I feel like I should, I should go back just a little bit uh, to right after the Grant Wall tweet, which is like, I actually went to Columbus. That was my first assignment covering uh, this whole saga, which was, um, I don't know if you guys remember, but the the crew was in the playoffs and uh, they had, a, I think, uh, a match against uh, NYCFC. It was on, it was on Halloween. Uh, I think it was actually on Halloween. And um, I, you know, I had sort of grappled with, um, and this is the reason that I wanted to bring this up is that I, for the first like week, week and a half, I was just watching this story unfold and, and Kevin would, you know, ask me things about, do you know this about Columbus crew? You, you know, who's the person to talk to for this and just certain things. And, and I didn't know whether I should really dive into it. Right. Like there's that whole issue of conflict of interest. And uh, I didn't really know what my interests were in the whole thing. And, then I was really kind of thinking about it at some point. And um, it was like that curated Twitter feed comment that I made is like, well, you know, for me, it'd be really awesome if there was an MLS team in Austin. Like one of the things that was missing when I moved here, I moved here without a job in 2016 and um, kind of, it's not that I had given up on the stream of covering soccer, but I, I was like, I don't know. Like, I don't know if there's going to be soccer in this, in this city. Like there might be at some point. And this was like the moment that it was maybe going to happen. And of course I wanted to, to report on it. And then also I had all these contacts and connections and just little things that I knew about the Columbus crew that who else in Austin knew that stuff. And it was like, I made a pact with myself very early on that honestly, like I kind of, at times maybe during the process of certainly I, I wished I, I, I didn't like throw myself this deep into it, but like, I was like, if I'm going to do this, the reason that I'm doing it is to like, if this is going to go down, if this is going to happen and this is going to be the MLS team that's going to come to Austin, like 
people need to know how it happened. And people need to know exactly what happened and who was the players and, and, and what, um, you know, what led to it happening. And, and I didn't know what was happening. And of course I wanted to find out just as a soccer interested person uh, living in Austin, Texas from Ohio. Like I talked to people that week, uh, the week after, yeah, the week after uh, the, the tweet went out or two weeks after was Ohio State, Penn State. And um, I, I'm an Ohio State football fan. And I went down to uh, the, the, the bar that, that people watch games at. And I was talking to like this young uh, group of friends that like, it was somebody like me that had moved from Ohio down there and then their friend that was visiting on the weekend. And they were just like, man, this is so crazy. Do you think this MLS team is going to come? Like, do you think the Columbus crew is going to move here? Like what is happening with this? And I was like, man, I don't really know what's happening. (laughs) And I was like, I need to figure it out. And, and I was like, well, if I feel that way, there's gotta be other people that want to know how this is going to happen. And I think that's the whole thing is that maybe I could have been more transparent, but at the same time, it was hard to get people to trust me. And I think that sitting here today and you guys can, can, you know, have your own opinions and somebody in, in Columbus can have their own opinions on how I went about it. Um, you know, I'm happy with the way things turned out. Of course, like I'm a soccer person from Ohio who lives in Austin. Like I wasn't unbiased. Like I can say that right now that I wasn't unbiased, but I wasn't biased one way or the other. I wanted soccer to, to thrive in two cities that I knew soccer could thrive in and the jury's still out on both, but I think they both got, they're both in a much better position than they were before. And in some small way, like I like to think that the things that I was doing and the things that Andrew Erickson was doing and the things that other reporters like were doing to kind of uncover the truth of what was happening and peeking under rocks that people didn't want us to peek under and, you know, making requests for documents that people didn't want us to request. Like it all, like it all happened. And, and that's, I think that's the one thing that I kind of wanted to, to just come on here and say is like, yeah, like I threw myself in that fire and like, I'll take whatever comes out of it. But what came out of it at this point as we're sitting and talking in 2020 is like, it's pretty incredible, isn't it? Like to think back on all those moments and all of the times that people tried to gaslight me and tell me that I was biased and that I was a Columbus crew fan and that I was a pre-court apologist and that I was you know (laughs) just an idiot. Like that stuff hurt and it sucked. Yeah. And I like went through like a dark period and I, I like, maybe like that's maybe a bridge too far and like, but it just, it all happened. And like, I'm, I'm happy that I, I guess I went through it. I I don't know. And I think, so I've heard, um, I think, yeah, I think reporters, like journalists, people, people who, who work in news will say like, if there's a story that has two sides, if you can come out of it with both sides of it, like people from both sides of it thinking that you you were leaning one way or the other, then you probably did your job right. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I tried to tell myself that, you know, <laughs> but it didn't always work, you know. Yeah. 
Uh, I can't imagine. Like, I just like uh, Jeremiah and I, and like a lot of people we know here in town, just like the stuff that was happening on Twitter that wasn't even necessarily aimed at me as a person or like my, like my work or like what I was doing. Like there, there was, it got very emotional just from that aspect of it. So I can't imagine how much, like how much more intense it was for you, like being kind of right at the heart of all of it. So yeah, I, uh, yeah, it's, I, I don't envy that position. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it's all fine. We like the, like you, the Mr. Rogers thing, like, if it's, or was it? It's if, if it's, it's mentionable, like mentionable, it's manageable. Yeah, like <laughs> it's like I don't know. Yeah, Mr. Rogers uh, maybe helped me through a little bit, but who knows? <laughs> <laughs> maybe somebody else talking like him. Who knows? But uh, it just it's uh, it's wild to think back on all those moments. But here we are in in, in 2020, and we got a pandemic to get through. But uh, you know, soccer is going to start on time in in Austin and there's a new stadium on the way in, in Columbus and, you know, like everybody's in a better spot than they were in, in October 16th, 2016 or 2017. And, and that's, and that's what I think makes me feel kind of good about the whole thing. Um, so we can, we can say now that, that we're sure Austin is going to have a major league soccer team, but there were long stretches because of things happening in Ohio and things happening here in Austin where that was not necessarily the case. And that's another thing we wanted to ask you about is during, um, again, for people who weren't following this super closely, there was the lawsuit in Ohio that was, could have potentially kept the team from moving. But then here in Austin, they, they needed to get a place to build a stadium. Like MLS wasn't going to give Austin a team if there was not a good site to build a stadium on. And so there's this huge city council saga that happened here trying to get a site approved for this. And so what Jeremiah and I talked a little bit about before we started recording and what we wanted to ask you is were there times along, along this journey, like just in Austin where you felt like this wasn't going to happen. And then was there a moment that that changed and you were pretty sure it was going to? Yeah, there were plenty on the first question. There were plenty of moments when uh, I can remember just uh, moments in the newsroom uh, where Kevin Lytle and I would be uh, just talking through different moments throughout the process. And um, like you said, like, it was like a percentage, like Kevin loves doing percentages on like, what's the percentage you think it will happen. And I can't remember the lowest or highest that I ever got, but there were definitely moments when it was well below 50% that, uh, that this was gonna, gonna go through. And, and even to the point where I think for the first probably three or four months, uh, until there, well, uh, maybe even after there were stadium, uh, locations that was like December, I think when there were, uh, like the city was pointing out different spots on the map. That, that I think I that sounds, that sounds right. Yeah. I, I ended up doing like a, a, a tour of them and, and I went around to all the different possibilities, but, um, basically people thought Kevin and I were crazy for, for, for chasing this story as hard as we were. They thought the Statesman was a little bit chasing a, a red herring and that Austin was a pawn in, in this greater scheme for Columbus to get a new stadium or for pre-court to get his, his team a new, because, and I think the the larger feeling around this is that like, there's a lot of old Austin that feels 
like Austin's still uh, not quite um, the right place or not quite big enough and not quite a major league. And, and they just felt like they were a pawn in this larger scheme that MLS was, was running to, to get money out of other people's pockets. And um, I think there were definitely publications in, in Austin that felt like the Statesman was putting too much effort and too much, uh, time into into reporting on it and uh interesting but like we knew like right we were talking to uh people in both columbus and in austin that that knew that this was uh, like a real possibility like the way that people were acting the, the way that the ownership in columbus was acting was not uh the way you would act if you were trying to 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 get a, a deal done in, in Columbus, uh, in certain moments. So like, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's interesting to think back, but yeah, there were certainly moments when we didn't think it. And as far as the moment when I really did think that the, uh, the stadium deal specifically, I can remember, uh, just the moment when, and it's really, really like city council, like Jeremiah will appreciate this, but the moment that I knew that the, the stadium deal was gonna have a chance was, when um you remember uh item 60 do you do you remember oh yeah the, like the first seven four vote right basically yeah exactly so like there was this item 60 that was on the city council uh agenda for june 28 2018 that infa- infamous day when we were all there until 4 a.m um and I went outside city hall when, when Anthony Precourt was walking into the building and I just said, Hey, um, if this item 60 passes, it doesn't look good for you guys. What do you, what do you think? Uh, you know, something along those lines of like, what, what happens if item 60 passes or like, do you think it's going to pass? And he said, it's not optimal for us. I actually found this quote today. It's not optimal for us. It might slow things up a bit. But as long as item 64 passes, which ended up actually being item 130, um, which is what kept us there so late, but um, that's what we're hoping for. He said, we're confident. And, and, and be- before that, item 60 was being talked about as this poison pill that was going to kill the whole thing. And we can get into the minutia of it, but basically- what, was, Just briefly, what was that, item 60? Yeah, so it was like, it was when, um, so there was that group uh, and I don't want to get the names wrong, but there was that group that wanted to build a mixed use development on the, on the land. And yeah, uh, um, Capella, I think. Yeah. Capella. And they wanted an RFP process, which would be the normal, uh, there, there's like, um, debates over whether that, whether that would have been the normal process for a, a track like this to go through. And, um, th- so, basically they wanted an RFP process to be implemented into um, what was going to happen out there, which would have just would have dragged the process on for probably like another year. And, and it would have made the, the stadium like things needed to happen quickly, quicker than that. Um, and so what was that later item that, that so what happened was, it? what happened was they, there was not enough support on the, the city council for that RFP process, but it was negotiated um in a way there were some things that were changed and it wasn't necessarily publicly known going to the to to the dais that night that the uh, item 60 had been changed significantly to the point where it was no longer a poison pill 
But when I talked to pre-court, he clearly knew that. And when I sensed the body language from Richard Suttle and everybody in the pre-court camp, they clearly knew that something had been changed, that item 60 was no longer a threat, and this RFP process was no longer going to happen. And um, I remember talking to Mayor Adler at 4 a.m. Uh, that, that morning, the next morning, um, right after things had finished up. And um, he, here's a quote from him. He said, the change from not asking for an RFP process to, uh, to just saying receive offers, it was the memo from the manager saying, quote, this is how I interpret item 60. At that point, this deal will make or not, make or not make based on the negotiations now between the team and the city. And this is the part that I thought was super important. I, I think I bolded it at the time in my notes, but if they can negotiate a good deal, then soccer will happen here. And that's the mayor at 4 a.m. On, on June 29th. And, and um, I had not slept in a long time and I don't really know if I registered at the moment how important that was, but I do remember <laughs> the next morning feeling like, okay, yeah, this is, this is going to happen. I think, like, I think this is, this was way over 50%. It's, it's, it's going to happen. And, um, you know, those are the kinds of things that being deep in this process, like, I don't know that you would think that it was this change in language from RFP process to receive offers is what did it, but it's kind of how the whole thing worked. It was very political and very, uh, I learned a lot about politics uh, over those few months, but to me, that was the moment, you know, that was the moment talking to the mayor at 4am. Yeah. I think, I think the moment for like soccer fans here in town was uh, a few months later in August when the city council voted on the term sheet for the stadium lease at McCalla place. Uh, that was, that was the time for me when I was like, okay, this is almost definitely going to happen at this point. Um, and then it was not much longer after that. It looks like a week after was when the team name and the branding and everything was announced. And so the actions from pre-court sports ventures at the time made all of us think that like, they they believe this is going to happen, and so we all kind of believed it was going to happen. Um, and believe me, there were still some people that were nervous after that moment on June 29th. Like, there was that vote, and, and nobody knew exactly which votes for which, and there was a lot of late, right? There was, uh, I think, Kathy Tovo was asking for some things at the last minute, and uh, Jeremiah probably remembers some of, the, some of the maneuverings, maybe as well as I do, but I'm trying to think. Who was yeah, they, I mean, they made the a pushes. lot of changes. Yeah. Remember, uh, uh, Kassar got the affordable housing thing, which yeah. I think sort of eventually settled him on it. I, I like to think that my testimony at 312 in the morning, <laughs> that, <laughs> night, that magical 60 seconds that I had when everybody was bleary, I drove at home. But yeah, I mean, they definitely, to the city's credit, and they, they ended up getting a better deal because everybody had a little, you know, a little something they wanted to make it happen, to really make it a better deal for the taxpayers of all. Austin yeah. and, it, and they, they basically got it all. Yeah, they did. They did. And I think that's what you had to really, I think, listen closely to some of the, 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 the language that some of the, those council members were using where they were being firm with their language. But I don't know, you know, at the end of the day, I think they were going to find a way, whether between, um, you know, the folks at PS, you know, pre-court sports ventures at the time, Richard Settle, Dave Greeley and, and, and the whole bunch, like, 
they needed to get it done and, and the city city ultimately wanted it or like the, the majority of the council council ultimately wanted it to happen now there were certain things that they they wanted to see and they needed to see in the deal but um it just you kind of got the feeling that there was at the end of the day there was going to be those those uh six votes and there ended up being seven so yeah i i, I appreciated those those specific council members who there were certain council members who were most definitely acting in bad faith with some of the things they were suggesting and essentially trying to slow the process down. There were others who knew that the city of Austin had leverage in the deal and worked in things that, that in the end, I think made this a really good deal for the city. And so I, I really appreciate you, you mentioned Greg Kassar. There's, there's several others who, who had things they brought to the table that ended up. Delia, making Delia Garza was, I think a big one. And that's yeah that's mm-hmm. what I was trying to remember, but there was a lot of some of the transportation stuff that, that ended up being part of it that, that might ultimately lead to that uh, rail station. And, and that was sort of her last push. And, you know, there's several others. I mean, Jimmy Flanagan was very vocal toward the end and, and I appreciated his candor and his voice um, helping me kind of navigate uh, things at that point where um, but every city council acts in a different way. And, and, you know, um, it was, it was really uh, enlightening to me to watch that process play out. But I think you're right, Landon. Like, I think as much as soccer fans maybe hated it in the moment, like um, I think a lot of people in Austin are, are quicker to, to, to latch onto this team because of the way that some of that stuff ended up going down at the, at the last minute. So um, I think it ultimately played out the best, the best way that it could have, or, or, or as close as possible, at least. Yeah. So um, we kind of running out of time here, but the last little segment that I wanted to touch upon was um, there was, so let's, let's look at the timeline here. I have a little uh, diagram laid out for myself so I could keep everything straight, but that was August 15th when city council approved the stadium lease agreement um within october 12th is when rumors of the crew being sold to local owners started happening so it seems like during there was like a month and a half or two months there where it felt like the crew is dead and yeah and that was the that was the hard part to really to gauge and if you um it was did you want to ask me a specific no no i was, was going to say like I just kind so of there me, really there really was a moment there where that's that's what it felt like and after a after a while there was enough talk and enough rumors of other stuff going to happen but there was a stretch there for a while where like it felt like that like it was over yeah and it was certainly a possibility but i think i was i was really hesitant at that point um, what was it? August 15th. You said when, when, um, when that final vote happened, I think that's, I think that's the date. And yeah. I remember the language that, that Richard Suttle had been using for the last couple council meetings was, uh, it was no longer, he was no longer talking about the Columbus crew and he was no longer really talking about 2019 or rushing the timeline as much as he had been. And and there was, sort of a sense that I was starting to get that, okay, maybe this isn't the Columbus crew that we're talking about. Maybe there's something larger and there was no way to really know, right? There was no way to know, but there was a little moment with Anthony Precourt um, where he was standing in front of the media 
Um, and it was, that was the question that I, I don't remember if I asked or might've been Jim Vertuno that got it out before, before I could, but we were asking about what, you know, what would say to, to fans in, in Columbus? Um, I think that's what Jim asked uh, very pointedly. And, and he didn't, he didn't really say anything, um, but I don't know. I, I can't really explain it, but everything there, that I got. There was little, like little cues and hints that you started to see that made you think that maybe that. And maybe think it that wasn't it wasn't. be the case anymore. Yeah. Maybe think it wasn't dead. Like it wasn't, it wasn't like this vote had decided the fate of, of the crew. And, and that, that kind of also was the reaction. That's, I was taking cues right from all the people that I, that I was um, able to, to kind of talk to in Columbus and, um, you know, see their thoughts on, on social media. And they weren't overly, there were certainly some, there were certainly some that were, that were just completely devastated by the, the city council vote, but there was also a feeling that, okay, there, this isn't really, this isn't really what's going to decide, decide it. We need to find, we need to find local owners. And that's ultimately what ended up happening. But I mean, there's certainly moments when the, the deal could have fallen through with the, the, the Haslam's in that intervening time. Um, but I think that, I just didn't think that the August 15th vote was the nail in the coffin for, for the crew and call that. I had to hesitate to say optimism on my part, my, my part, but I kind of said earlier what my feelings were on the whole thing. Like I just, I didn't think that that, that the, the crew was going to die on the, on the city council vote, which is what made the trip, by Leslie Poole, which I think is something that you wanted to, to maybe, I don't have much to say on that, but the trip that she made to Columbus really wasn't very fruitful at the end because it wasn't like she was deciding on their fate. She was just deciding on whether her city was going to get a soccer team. And sure, she was led at certain points to believe that it was the crew and, and we were all led to believe that it was going to be the crew, but um, it didn't ultimately be, end up being the, the anything. Anybody, nobody in Austin decided what was going to happen with the Columbus crew. It was everybody in New York at the MLS offices and everybody in Columbus that pushed and, and, and screamed and, and made, it, made it difficult for them and everybody league-wide, but it was nobody in Austin that decided whether, whether the crew was going to exist or not. It was all about the support that existed or didn't exist for a professional soccer team in, in Columbus, Ohio. That was, that was always the – that was always – the uh what was going to decide whether there was a team in, in columbus yeah pe people i talk to on on twitter like i've met over the last couple of years who they want to be angry at people in austin or they want to be angry at at anthony precourt or whatever and like there are reasons for all like i mean i, I think least of all people in austin because like you said we were told this is we want to give you a soccer team this is what needs to happen it's like okay we'll do that um Anthony Precourt, I think you stepped that up a little bit more. Like he was more involved in in that move. But I think if you want to be mad at anybody, be mad at Major League Soccer because they facilitated this whole thing. <laughs> yeah, and I mean that goes back to I did want to mention, and maybe I don't know if you want to. Uh, there were a couple of stories if you want to get into the Austin side and the minutia that that uh, I wrote back early last year, I think in around March, that that kind of 
there's a lot of kind of behind the scenes um, with uh, some of the um, open records requests, things that I was able to find out. But one of those, like you said, like MLS was literally the day after they announced the expansion list um, and, and Austin wasn't on it. Um, they met with the mayor, like Don Garber and Mark Abbott. And uh, I think some other folks from, from the league office met with uh, Mayor Adler, like Austin wasn't on the expansion list. Like there was, the league was totally, totally pushing for this to happen at certain points. And then at the very end, like it was very obvious that the, the league was okay, Anthony, like you guys get the stadium deal done in, in Austin and you're free to move to Austin, but, it, but it's on you at this point. Like they weren't, they weren't openly, uh, you know, maneuvering for, uh, for, for pre-court at that, at that point toward the end, like, um, that's to me, like the wind had shifted and the wind was now, it was like that, that whole parallel past thing that was such seemingly BS at the beginning, like it's kind of what was happening toward the end was like, okay, we got to figure out how to get a stadium done in like two months on the other end. Meanwhile, Precourt's got to figure out how to get the stadium deal done in Austin. We could talk about the differences between Columbus and Austin uh, city politics, but uh, they both got done. So, like, uh, credit to the folks, I guess, on both ends. But, like, MLS really wasn't – they weren't uh, in Mayor Adler's office in, in, uh, in, in 2019, at least not that I know of. Uh, or in 2019, 20, 2018, but they certainly were in, in 20, was that 2016? 2016, yeah, early 2016. So, I mean, the, yeah, like MLS was totally in on it. Yeah, so um, before we we wrap up, I think we one other thing that I wanted to get to is kind of the, the current state of things. Um, Austin FC seems to be in a really in a really good position right now to start the next season on time. Um, There's an announcement a few weeks ago about all of the other expansion teams that got moved back a year. Austin FC could I mean could have been that. I mean Charlotte, who's set to come in the same year as us, um, got moved back a year. But just because of how far along Austin FC is, it seems like the league agrees that it's in really good shape right now. Uh, Columbus crew is going to be building a brand new stadium or currently building a brand new stadium that they'll move in to at some point next year, most likely. Um, and at least this season have a really good team and seems like they're in a good situation on the field as well. So what do you think the future of this looks like? Do you think there will be a long lasting rivalry between Austin and Columbus? Um, you know, that's an interesting one. I think it's, it's Columbus's rivalry. Right. And, and that's, um, there's going to be folks in Austin that are going to enjoy that aspect of, of, of Austin FC existing and and are going to enjoy that rivalry too. But it's really, it's really Columbus's rivalry. And I don't think you can really take that away from them. Like they saved their team and, and, and Austin's, you know, kind of, the symbol that they can point to that is what almost ended it. And, and that's just what it is like. So I think that rivalry would, it will exist 
in one form or another. Um, whether it's a big deal five or 10 years down the road depends on what happens on the field. Like I was watching the MLS's back tournament and watching Columbus crew just romp through the, the, the group stages. And I was like, man, like this team's gonna, this team's good and they're going to be good probably next year. And Austin is going to be on the field next year and they're probably going to play Columbus at some point. How, how cool would it be if at some point uh, Columbus keeps on this trajectory and Austin, you know, is the force that we think that they might, they could be. And, and what would it be like to see a, an MLS cup either in Columbus <laughs> or in Austin between, and these are the things that I just kind of dream up in my head, but like everything that's happened the last few years, crap, like that's not that crazy, but like yeah. <laughs> uh, how crazy would that atmosphere be if you had an MLS cup between Austin and Columbus in Columbus and Anthony Precourt sitting in the, owner's box and, <laughs> uh you know like that's a real life thing that could happen at some point and that would really ramp the rivalry up but like if they only meet once every two years and the games are kind of crap and and you know nobody really cares outside of you know columbus about it then then maybe it dies off in the next few years but i think it just kind of depends what happens on the field and that's a beauty we get it we get to talk about soccer and we get to talk about actual games so that's 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 the beauty of uh where we're at right now is like we're we started this off talking about cecilia dominguez like thank god thank god we're talking about soccer <laughs> this be the last Absolutely. conversation I, I have about uh columbus uh and and city politics uh in a while and for a while i i hope so um yeah. yeah. Anyway. Well, I, I was imagining like the away supporters safety instructions for that, uh, that uh, imaginary MLS, MLS cup match between Columbus and Austin. I imagine it would be pretty <laughs> exciting. It would be intense. That's for sure. I mean, I remember the atmosphere surrounding MLS cup 2015 in Columbus. And I mean, you want to say like, there's no support for soccer in Columbus. Like, there's all kinds of reasons why that's, that hasn't been the case, but man, people showed up that day. And, uh, so, you know, like M MLS Cup in that brand new stadium against Austin FC, man, I, I want to be there for that if that happens. That that would be that would be insane. Yes, absolutely. All right, um, I think we can wrap it up there. We like I, like we talked about. This is a, an extremely complex story, and there's a lot of stuff we didn't even scratch the surface of. Uh, like I think when we were talking. To plan planning this all, Chris said that we could do a whole series on this. Like, essentially, started an entire podcast just talking about all of this. But uh, yeah, I'd rather I'd rather just keep going forward and talk about soccer in the next the next six months to a year. So I agree. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Chris. This is great. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, yeah, keep up the good work, and uh, look forward to seeing you guys. Um, soon hopefully and um, you know once we get past everything and hopefully uh, are able to either enjoy a beer or, or you know pass each other in the stadium and and that's really what i'm, I'm looking forward to and seeing the, the soccer culture in this city grow because we all know what it what it is already and what it what it can be because it's, it's going to be it's going to be quite cool and it's going to be like honestly that's austin's going to show the world i think at some point whether it's next year or you know the year after that that this is a soccer city and, and no matter how you feel about the Anthony Precourt and the Columbus saga and everything that happened, um, in 2017 through 20, you know, 18 and 19, like 
Austin FC is is coming and it's about soccer in Austin. It's not about Columbus crew and it's not about Anthony Preport. It's about a new force to be reckoned with in, in American soccer. And I, I truly believe that I've seen it and, and uh, witnessed it the last four years since I moved here. And, and I'm so happy to be kind of part of the soccer community here. And, and um, you know, that's what I'm proud of. I think from, you know, that this, all of that crap led to, to now I'm talking to you guys and, and still able to, and I put a smile on my face and think about the game <laughs> that I love. So, I mean, that's, that's what it's all about. So, and I'm talking too long again, I'm just going to shut up and get off your podcast now. <laughs> Before we finish, where, where can people find your work, Chris? Yeah. So follow me at Chris Bills on Twitter. And uh, right now you can find my work in the Austin American Statesman and uh, leave it there for now. Like uh, we'll, we'll see what the next uh, year brings. All right. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. When no one is around.